All right, well, good morning, Shore Church. My name is Jordan. I'm the director of youth at the Shore. Really excited to get to preach and teach this morning. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 6. Uh, let me just say a special good morning and welcome for anyone who's not a part of the Shore Church. Maybe you stumbled upon us online somehow. Uh, let me just say, if you want to learn more about us, you can head to www.theshorechurch.ca. Really good to have you. I uh, hope everyone's hanging in there okay in quarantine. Uh, I know desperate times in my household. Uh, I had to get my wife to give me a haircut. I think she did a pretty good job, all things considered. I know my mom's probably not going to like it, but what are you going to do? Hope you guys are all hanging in there and doing okay. Uh, I actually feel pretty comfortable preaching in front of the camera, not because I was like an actor or anything in another life, but uh, in my my hockey playing days, I actually did a lot of interviews, so I'm used to being in front of the camera, and so I'm going to fight the urgency to not preach like I'm giving a hockey interview, you know, to be like a... well, you know, uh, obviously uh, Paul's out there in Galatia and he's, you know, he's doing whatever he can. He's given 110% and it's a grind out there every day, but you've got to do whatever it takes to win out there. You just keep working hard, keep the pedal to the metal and uh, keep pushing. It is what it is. Sometimes you're going to win, sometimes you're going to lose. That's just how it goes. Okay, thanks. No, I'm not going to do that. So don't worry, I'm going to fight the urge on that. But, um, but honestly, looking back on a lot of past hockey teams I've played on, I can honestly say that I've seen aspects of Galatians 6 lived out really, really well. And it's no coincidence either that the teams I played on that lived out these qualities the most were far more successful than the ones that didn't. Like, I played on a a lot of really, really good teams that had tons of talented players and tons of great skills, but it was the ones who had true community, true care for one another, truly a cohesive unit, had a family-like love. It was those ones that succeeded. And I remember a lot of the teams I played on just being willing to do absolutely anything for one another. You know, and we would be so happy for one another when someone would score a goal. Or we'd see someone go out there and block a shot. It would get us so fired up that we would want to go block a shot. And let me just say, Blocking a shot is one of the most brutal things in hockey. Like, you might watch it on TV, maybe obviously not now, but you might see someone block a shot on TV and they just get up like nothing happened, but you're literally diving in front of a 100-mile-an-hour shot and hoping it hits you. It's crazy. There's not much more painful than blocking a shot other than maybe being trapped in a one-bedroom apartment for 14 days with your wife. I'm just kidding, honey. I love you. All right? So, so I played on a lot of teams that really loved and cared for one another, that would not be afraid to speak hard truths to each other. Like, hey, man, like, I noticed you're slacking a little bit here. You got to work harder. You got to get in the weight room. You got to watch some more film because I'm worried you're going to get cut. You're going to get released. Like, we wouldn't be scared to tell each other these hard truths because we all had a common goal in mind, right? Like, we would do this not to put ourselves above one another, but for the good of the team. And so this morning, what we're going to see is what it looks like to be a successful gospel-centered community. And when I say successful, I mean that we're showing the fruits of the Spirit. We are reflecting Jesus in our lives. We're constantly living in the presence of God, and we're longing to know him more every day together. And so to do that, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 6, but rather than meticulously exegeting the text, which just means we break down line by line what the text means for us, which, by the way, is my favorite thing to do when it comes to preaching, right? I love looking at the text that way. 
but I've felt this week like God has something else in store and to not do that. And so when I feel the need not to exegete a text, I take that as divine intervention. So we're going to look at really three main points that I think God has for us in this text this morning. And it's all about gospel-centered community. So three ways to live out gospel-centered community. Number one, we're going to see we got to watch each other's backs. we got to watch each other's burdens. And finally, we got to watch each other, period. Okay, so that's where we're headed this morning. And, and so right out of the gate, I want to say something to kind of set the stage that I don't believe is going to be new or revelatory for any of you who have been in church. But it's something that the Bible, and specifically the book of Galatians, has been teaching us again and again and again. That if we're going to want to enter into the fullness of joy and the fullness of community that God has for us, we have to grasp Here it is. Our identity is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. And the more we make the world not about him, but about yourself, the more frustrated we get, the more anxiety we have, right? The more angry we might get, But the more it's not about you and it's about him, the more joy you'll walk in, the more freedom you'll have. That's what Galatians has been about, that your identity lies in Jesus. So ask yourself this morning, does it? And so in this gospel redefining world that God has created in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, not only are we powerfully reconciled to God the Father and given a new identity, But here we go. That new identity in Christ creates a community of faith that is spectacular to behold and be a part of. And like I said, I've beholden aspects of it in my hockey career to some extent. And I've been blessed to see it portrayed at my time here at the shore. And we get to behold it today in Galatians 6. And my hope is that we would behold it far beyond this 40 or 60 minutes that we have here together. But my hope is really that God would open up our hearts to see how each of us can live this out in our unique environments in this unique time. So to do that, let's look at Galatians 6, starting in verse 1. Paul says this. He says, brothers... If anyone is caught in any transgression, okay, let me just stop really quickly because we need to grasp what he means here if we're going to understand the rest of the text. So when Paul says, brothers or sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, okay, this is not the idea of being busted, right? It's not like you got caught sinning. It's not like you're some kind of sin detective going around trying, got you, caught you sinning. No, that's not what this is. This is not, brothers, if any of you are caught in the act of transgression. No, this is actually saying, brothers or sisters, if any of you are walking in, are ensnared in, are enslaved in, if any of you are in trouble, If sin is beginning to overcome you, it's not the idea of busting someone. It's the idea of seeing a brother or a sister who is drowning in need of help and saving. 
And so what's our response to a brother or sister who is drowning? As we have found our identity in Jesus and he has made us new in him, what is our response? He says, you who are spiritual should restore him. So picture this, okay? You have a brother or a sister who is entangled or is stuck in sin. We see it. And now the responsible party is those who are spiritual. Now, we know from our study of this book that when he says those who are spiritual, be careful, he's not saying pastors, elders, deacons, church leaders, mature people in their faith. No, he's referring to anyone who is a believer in Christ. He's tying to this verse to what he has already said previously, especially last week when he talked about walking in the flesh versus walking in the spirit. He's saying that those who are walking in the spirit, being led by the spirit, living in the spirit, keeping in step with the spirit, those of you who are in the spirit, so all of you who call yourselves Christians, your job is to engage the brother or sister who is drowning in their transgressions and do what? Restore them. The ultimate goal is restoration. To bring them back to where they should be with their identity rooted in Jesus. So why do we engage brothers or sisters who are drowning? Why do we engage those who are being overcome by sin? Why do we engage those who are hurting and losing their fight against iniquity? It's in order to restore. And so we work not as detectives or judges, but as friends, as a community. Let me, let me show you this. It's such a great attitude. In 1 Peter 4, 8, it says, it says this. Let me show you. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins, okay? So if we can combine that, that beginning verse with this idea, here's what you have, all right? You don't have a police-like judgmental environment where we all have our sin antennas up and I'm just waiting for someone to screw up so I can pounce on them, write them a ticket, turn them over to the elders. No. Actually, what he just said here is that love covers a multitude of sins. This means if you're having a tough day, you know, maybe you're having a rough day, I'll be like, okay, like... Tough days happen, I get it, I'm going to pray for you, and just kind of leave it at that. But, but if that tough day becomes consistent, and a day turns into days, or weeks, or months, then I engage. And when love covers a multitude of sins, then the motivation of my heart is faith working through love, not judgment, and so, like, if you have a bad day, I have the tendency, you know, to just maybe trust the Lord, pray for you, move on. But, but if I notice that that day becomes a pattern I see in you, then those who are spiritual, we engage our brothers and sisters who are being entangled and ensnared. Why? Because that's someone we love who is drowning and is on the path to destruction. How could we possibly not intervene if we truly love them and care about them? And now here's the big part. 
How do we do this? Because can we all agree that those conversations are a bit awkward? Especially if we're going to tell them this and then we're stuck in the same house as them for the next three months or however long this goes for. So let's look at how we are to restore our brothers or sisters who are caught, ensnared, enslaved, or drowning in their transgressions. Look what he says here. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. How? In a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. And then he says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Now, that word gentleness is a little bit broad, isn't it? Like, how should we go about doing this? He says, gently. Well, here's what I know. Gentile, gentle, sorry, is a relative term, isn't it? Like, like I know even in my hockey playing days, I've had coaches gently tell guys that they need to improve how they're playing, how they're playing needs to change. And for some, they get it. They take the critique, they use that to get stronger, to work out harder, to watch more film, to get better. But others take that exact same message with the exact same tone and go into full-on self-loathing, woe is me, self-doubt. And the same thing happens to many of us when we're engaged by a brother or sister, even if it's done gently. It's just different for each of us. And so I think the key to how we approach brothers and sisters who are entangled and drowning is to look at the second part of that text where he says, watch your own heart and how your heart is tempted. If I could kind of read this backwards, here's how I believe this should take place according to the word of God, all right? If I see or if you see a brother or sister who is drowning, who is giving in to temptation, who has a constant type of behavior that goes against the will of God for their lives, You know, maybe I see a certain treatment of their family, a neglect for their spouse, or I see sins in their life that is just blatant, out there in the open, no fight on their part, and just become who they are. In that case, I engage, but not before searching my own heart and making sure my motive is coming with compassion and love. Let me say that you will always approach another brother or sister gently when you understand the gospel, when you understand that for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is a gift from God. If you feel like you're beyond that and you feel like that can never happen to you, if you feel like you're well beyond that and you're taking the position of judge or an authority, then it will be impossible for you to come alongside them gently because maybe you would rather show your biblical insight. You'd rather show how mature you are, how holy you are. You'll take far too much delight in being the helper rather than being the one who could see themselves in that same ditch potentially. But if you can search your heart and not give in to the temptation to feel greater than, if the Holy Spirit would do his work in reminding you that all of your successes are because of the grace of God alone and not by your own might, then 
you can genuinely and truly gently reach out your hand to a brother and sister and say, come on, let's get out of here. Let's do this together. And so I want to break this down a little more practically in two directions, okay? So for the one who is the spiritual, who sees the one struggling, who sees the one entangled, who sees the one drowning, your job biblically is to get into your hearts and see what's motivating you to engage. Do you want to be right? Do you want to be seen as smart or superior? Do you want to be seen as godly? Or do you have a genuine concern for the soul of, the heart of, our brother or sister? I would put that on you if you're the one giving. But what if you're the recipient of the conversation, okay? Can I just point out some things that we're all prone to do when it comes to criticism and rebuke? Just so that you can be on guard against it, okay? So if someone comes to you and says something like, hey, hey, I've noticed this about you. I I just want to lay it out before you because I love you. Maybe you're not seeing it. Here's a couple things not to do, all right? Number one, don't try to go find a bunch of people who disagree with that and build an army or coalition against it. Here's what I mean. If you don't know if what they're saying is right or wrong, What you need to do is find some men and women who you love and who you know actually love you, who are not cowards. What I mean by that is is if, if they were to sit down with you, would they give you an honest answer to a question like, hey, well, Jordan says, you know, he thinks I'm drinking too much and I, I treat my wife poorly. Do you see that in me? Come on. Like, you, do you actually see that in me? Will those people honestly and truthfully answer that? Or will they just be like, no, come on. Like, you know, I bet Jordan, he, he's just jealous of your lifestyle. I bet he just wishes he had a marriage like yours. Right? Now, now, what you're going to do is you're building a coalition that agrees with you instead of taking the accusation seriously. So, so don't make your first response to build a defense because if the person is actually right, how could that possibly help you? Right? And if I could encourage you in any way relationally, it would be to limit the amount of unloving people or cowards you put around you. And I know that sounds like common sense, but I think we all have people in our lives who would rather brush aside those moments, who would just agree with you rather than engaging because they don't want to do that painful work of examination and telling you the truth, right? But again, if if, if the gospel puts our identity in Jesus and not in ourself, that means that anyone bringing an issue up to you is not personal. It's an act of love that Jesus has called us to. And so this person engaging me is after my good. And that should come off as gently because they should have been praying and engaging the Lord and approaching you with a great deal of gentleness and compassion for your soul. And so the first thing I want you to do is not build a coalition of people who are on your side, but to seriously consider the accusation before the Lord, before the word of God. And then before those who are of good wisdom around you. Building a defense system, an opposition, 
it's just not good for your soul. And honestly, the enemy would love for us to do that in an effort to divide us. Secondly, don't look for faults in their life that somehow remove the truth of the accusation in your mind, right? Can I give you some breaking news? There's no perfect people. If you're looking for negatives in people, you are going to find them, right? So don't look for that. Unless someone actually says, hey, I'm perfect, and therefore you should, right? You have no grounds to call them out on their stuff if they are accusing you of something. Maybe that would be another conversation you have in the future, but in that moment, you focus on what they're saying to you. You don't make your response like, oh, what, you think you're perfect? No, 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 no. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm just saying I saw this thing in you and I'm concerned about you. Oh, what, so you don't have issues? I have tons of them, tons. But again, this is what I want to talk about because I love you. Trust me, I've had people already point those things out to me. I'm working on them. We can talk about those things later. But right now, I just see this thing in you that I notice and I think we should work on together. So, so again, don't let other people's shortcomings somehow remove any weight behind the accusation. Even if, and this is a big one, even if they did not approach you with gentleness and a heart that should have been laid before God to see what the motivation was to begin with. So let me put that another way. Even if someone approached you wrongly or in a way you didn't like, you at least owe it to your own soul to consider whether that accusation was true. And I know none of us like this, right? Like none of you woke up this morning, you know what I could use today? Like a good criticism, someone to tell me the things that I'm doing wrong. No, none of us like that. But if you're walking in the gospel, if your identity is in Jesus, then when you are rebuked or you are criticized, like it's going to be hard, I get it. And whether it's done with gentleness or not, our response needs to be, is there any truth in this, Lord? Help me. In fact, if if you think about it, it was actually criticism and rebuke on yourself that brought you to the cross to begin with, right? Like it was the fact that you knew you failed in a specific area. You knew you needed help. You knew you needed a savior. You knew you had a sinful heart. Those were some of the things that brought you to the cross of Christ. These aren't negative things. This is a positive thing to do that will ultimately bring you closer to God and closer as a community and will bring you more and more joy. And isn't that what we're all after? And so if you see someone you care about walking in a dangerous way, who is drowning For you to say nothing is far more unloving than embracing that awkwardness. So we watch each other's backs. But that's not all this gospel community has for us. Look at number two here. We watch each other's burdens. Look what Paul says in verse two. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. So not only are we 
with our identity in Jesus, okay, set free in our relationship with one another to both receive critique and give critique as we see one another drowning, giving into their sins, being entangled, being choked up, being caught up in, we are willing to engage, but then on top of that, we're willing to bear one another's burdens. We're able to engage and go, hey, I'll help you carry that. I'll walk with you through that. You don't have to do it alone. Now, this is profound, and here's why. Because some burdens are easy, right? And they're gone like that. One conversation, maybe. But some burdens, they go on and on and on and on and on for years, right? Sometimes you have to carry a burden for a long time. Maybe some of you feel the weight of that right now. And so we need to come alongside a brother or a sister and say, hey, I'll walk with you to glory no matter how long the road is. Let's go. You don't have to do this by yourself. And, and that burden can be all over the map, right? Like that burden can be financial. That burden can be spiritual. That burden can be emotional. That burden can be anything, right? Like, oh, you're a single mom and you don't know how you're going to take care of your kids right now? How can I help? How can I serve you? Oh, you're sick? Oh, you're, you're in quarantine? You can't go out and get groceries? How can I help you? Oh, you're struggling with sin? How can I encourage you? How can I keep up with you? How can I engage? Do I have permission to engage you over this struggle and keep you accountable? Oh, you don't know how you're going to pay your bills? It can be all over the place. And, and look, I know that specifically at the Shore Church, a bulk of our community is families and couples, okay? And I think the tendency, especially now, is to want to bear burdens of other families and other couples. But can I just encourage you not to neglect and to remember the single people in our congregation, they might need us to reach out and bear burdens with them more than ever right now because it's possible if they're living by themselves, they haven't had in-person human contact in weeks. And so let's not forget about them. Maybe someone's coming to your mind right now at the end of this sermon. Why don't you, why don't you shoot them a text, give them a call, and just bear their burdens as well. Don't forget about them. I know it's easy to be comfortable and stick with the, the other couples and families we know, but let's think about them as well. We gotta bear everyone's burden in this community. But honestly, these burdens can, can be anything. And I usually don't like vagueness in the scriptures, but I kind of like it here because Paul just kind of like vaguely says, bear one another's burdens. What kind of burdens? Burdens that burden, right? Like it's just anything. It could literally be anything, the smallest thing to the biggest thing. But what does a community that has found its identity in Christ look like? They engage one another lovingly when they're entangled or drowning and they're willing in a second to drop everything and bear one another's burdens. And sure, church, now more than ever, don't we have the opportunity to live this out? Let me say as someone who has been at the shore since its very beginning and has been on staff for a little while now, you have done an unbelievable job of this. Like when I was thinking about it this week, it honestly gave me chills. Like seeing and hearing stories of people who are sick being cared for, 
New parents being blessed with meals. Kids being taken care of. Gifts being bought for people who cannot afford them. People's bills being anonymously paid for by one another. Your faithfulness to this community is incredible. Gives me goosebumps. You know, when I was reading this verse this week, I was like, that's us. We are doing this. And I'm so grateful to God for the work he's done in this community. And let's keep going. Let's not be satisfied. Let's not settle. Let's continue to bear one another's burdens. So number three, we watch each other, period. Look what Paul says about this in Galatians 6, 9 and 10. He says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us not grow weary of doing good. And this can be hard, right? It can be hard because we have difficult people around us. We have difficult circumstances. We have a lot of things we're doing. We're busy. Look what John Calvin, the theologian, says about this idea. He says, We are naturally lazy in the duties of love. And many little stumbling blocks hinder and put off even the well-disposed. We meet with many unworthy, many ungrateful people. The vast number of the needy overwhelms us. We are drained by paying out on every side, and our warmth is damped by the coldness of others. Finally, the whole world is full of hindrances, which turn us aside from the right path. That's John Calvin. And at first glance, reading that... Aren't you just like, John, get some new friends, man. Like, who are you hanging out with here? These people sound miserable. But, but honestly, if you've thought about this, if you, if you live long enough, that's true, isn't it? You know, like, because of the brokenness of the world, isn't the default of a lot of people cynicism, selfishness, narcissism? And I would argue that there's probably someone in each of your lives right now who you feel walks in a bit of entitlement and ingratitude, who you've even tried to love and to serve and encourage. And and maybe it's getting tough and exhausting because the more you pay out, the more they demand. And even when you've tried to be good, they don't acknowledge that it was good because it wasn't good enough for them. And so what does the Bible say when things are tough, when you don't have time, when people are not getting it or not respecting your love and your good you're giving to them? What does Paul say to do? Look what he says here. He says, let us not grow weary for doing good. Why? For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So he's already said previously in the scriptures that you will reap what you sow. If you sow in the spirit, you will reap eternal life. And he's coming back around here and he's going to use this word reap again and tie it back to what he's already said. So he goes, here's why you don't grow weary. Here's why you don't stop doing good to people, even if they are thankless and cold and walk in a sense of entitlement. Here's why. Because when you, when I was thankless, and cold, God loved you and extended his grace to you in Jesus. God did good to you when you did not deserve good. 
So we don't do good to others so that they can owe us something in return. That's not why we do good. Doesn't Jesus even attack that idea that if you just give to those who can give back to you, then you're no different than the tax collectors and the Pharisees? And so Paul is on to something here that our motivation for doing good to others is that good has already been done to us in Christ Jesus when we were not worthy of that good. So if your standard of doing good to others is only to do good to others who can return the favor to you, who will be unbelievably grateful to you and want to give something in return to you, then you have the wrong motivation. The gospel, the good news, Jesus dying on the cross frees us to do good to all people, even the exhausting ones. Maybe even especially the exhausting ones. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying that doesn't take quite a bit of prayer and asking the Lord for patience and mercy and help, but that's the command here. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say this. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, he makes one statement here that's kind of a universal statement. And then he makes one that's very, very, very specific. So he says, okay, our motivation is that we have been recipients of good through what Jesus did for us on the cross when we didn't deserve any of that. So let us do good to all men, to all people, but especially those who belong to the household of faith those in the covenant community, those within the church. So you have this universal call to be on mission, on point, doing good to all. And I think in the end, this has a lot to do with where a lot of you work, the people who God has surrounded you with, the gifts that you have, the places God has put you in, the abilities, the margin to serve and help people, whether they are believers in Christ or not. The command is to do good to all. In fact, in another part of the scriptures, the Bible says that people will see our good deeds and they'll glorify God who is in heaven. That by doing good to all, even those who are not believers will see what God is like. That he loves unconditionally without asking for anything in return. It's a picture of the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. But then he turns it and he makes it really, really specific for us here, Shore Church. He says, but do especially good to those who belong to the household of faith. So what, what keeps happening in this text? There's this continual call for us as brothers and sisters in Jesus within the confines of the covenant community, the church, to love and serve one another, to seek out the welfare of one another, to bear one another's burdens with one another. Even when it hurts, even when it might cost us, even when it might inconvenience us, we come underneath that burden and we serve one another. 
And if we're walking in step with the gospel and we're considering others as better than ourselves and we are outdoing one another in honor and we're bearing one another's burdens and we're ferociously committed to one another, so much so that we're willing to go, hey, I fear for you, brother or sister. I feel like you're starting to drown here. I feel like you're drifting. I want to help you and restore you back to Jesus. And when we get to that place where there is a culture of honor that honors generously and graciously all people, when you're being watchful and mindful that you reap what you sow, so you're paying close attention to what you're sowing on a day in and day out basis, then ultimately when you're doing good to all, but especially those at the shore church within the covenant community, do you see how you've created this counter-cultural lifestyle that will seem crazy to the world? And I would argue, if we constantly portray this, we will look more and more attractive to the world because this overflow of love is not natural. It's not common. It's not conditional. But it's being done because we have been loved first. See, the the beauty of this gospel-centered community is this deep reliance we have on one another. It's a confession of weakness and need for each other. Culture's never going to think that's cool on the surface, is it? You know, in this individualistic world we live in. But if, if people were honest... I believe this is what everyone is longing for, Christian or not. A community where they are loved as they are, no matter what they've done or been a part of, with no conditions, where people won't let you bear your burdens on your own, where people will reach out their hand to you where you're drowning and restore you. And if you're not a Christian and you stumbled upon this video, that invitation is available for you today. We are all in desperate need of this. We're in desperate need for each other in this gospel-centered community. So let me lay out a few questions for you as we close here. And I'm going to put these on a slide for you to pray about, uh, either as a family or on your own. Or maybe you want to uh, call out one of those single people that came to your mind and, and talk with them through these and pray with them through these. But let me ask you a few questions to close this morning for you to ponder on, to consider. What in your own heart and in your own life needs to be confessed and repented of today. Because if the good news, the gospel, is that you are reconciled to God through Jesus, therefore reconciled to yourself, therefore reconciled to others, are there those we need to seek out and ask forgiveness? Are there those we have noticed are drowning and we've been too cowardly to lovingly engage. Has this series exposed in us a failure to believe our identity is solid in Jesus? Do we need to be more serious about sin? 
are we now entangled and drowning ourselves? I really pray that the Holy Spirit would stir up your heart right now and point you toward an identity in Jesus that will set you free. Where are you feeling a need to bear someone else's burden? To do good for someone, especially someone in the household of faith. We got to search our hearts, answer these, ponder them, and live them out. Let me pray. So Jesus, we just praise you for your word and that you have not created us, created us to do this on our own, but to do it with one another. And I thank you that we have one another. And I just pray for us as we go through these questions, maybe there's something that came to mind right away that we need to repent of. Maybe someone came to mind right away that we see as drowning. Maybe someone came to mind whose burdens we need to bear alongside them. Would you just give us the courage, the right motivation, the right heart to pursue and engage those things? Help us, God. We need you. We need you to help us do the difficult work of self-examination. And Lord, I just pray for restoration for all of my brothers and sisters regardless of what they're walking. And I pray that we would know you more and love you more than we, than we currently do. Help us. We need you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.